It's a privilege to be here with you. We want to continue worshiping our Lord by studying His Word and hearing from His Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 62. Luke chapter 9. It's printed in your bulletin. We can go ahead and start turning there in your bulletin or in your copy of God's Word. As I was thinking about this message, I thought about the process of learning how to play a new sport. If you have taken up tennis or maybe golfing or baseball, like I did as a young kid, you know that swinging a racket or a club or a bat is not a natural motion. It's something that must be learned. A new person does not pick up a tennis racket and know how to swing it most efficiently and to be accurate with using it. Think about if you give a three-year-old a tennis racket, what's going to happen? You better watch out. They might hit you with it accidentally. They might hit themselves with it. Beginners with a bat or a racket or a club can be quite dangerous. They could hurt themselves or others. The proper swing is something that has to be coached. It's not natural, but someone has to teach how to swing a racket or a bat properly. The coaching, proper coaching is important for the future success of the player and for the continuation of the sport. The things that we learn about sports have been passed down, they've been taught over and over. And the same is true across other sports or even in our work field, the things that we do, like repairing cars or repairing computers. All these things need to be taught. The proper way to use the tools have to be taught by someone. We have to learn how to do them. Beginners don't naturally know how to turn or to move or to swing. The right reactions, the right motions, the right thinking, all has to be taught to a new person in a sport or a field. These learners of a new sport or a new field, the Bible calls learners like this disciples. People who are following a teacher. A disciple is someone who's following a teacher. A disciple learns from a teacher. They learn how to do that sport or that job and how to carry it out successfully. After a while, disciples can then also teach other new people to that area. They can start discipling other new people, future learners. So the future players and workers can continue the process of learning and teaching, and it goes on and on and on. So this morning, when we look at Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37, this passage we're going to see Jesus teaching his disciples, and he's teaching them through their own failures. It's like a coach helping someone swing a bat or swing a racket. Oh no, your elbow is not in the right place. You're not thinking about the right thing. Your hips are not turning the way they're supposed to. But Jesus does this. And we're going to see the failures of the disciples. This is not their best and brightest moments. They have some serious mistakes, some serious failures in following Jesus correctly. And we're also going to see how Jesus teaches them. He guides them in the process of following him. He guides them on the path of following him correctly. When they fail, we're going to also see what Jesus thinks of their failure. Does he give up on them? Does he kick them out? Does he reject them? Does he put them on the sideline and not let them into the game? No, we're going to see that in spite of their failures, Jesus responds with grace toward his followers. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't say they're finished. No, he teaches them and guides them the right way that they should think and that they should act. He disciples them well with grace. Before we dive in, I want to give a little bit of background on chapter 9 of Luke. This is a very important chapter in Luke. It starts out with Jesus sending his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Verse 1 says that Jesus gave them authority and power over all demons and to cure diseases. He gave them his own power and authority to go out. When they returned, they were telling Jesus what happened, and a whole crowd came, a hungry crowd. And Jesus, using just a small lunch, fed 
a crowd that had 5,000 men. The whole crowd had probably had 15 to 20,000 people. After this miracle, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one that God has sent to save God's people. Now Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anyone that right now. And then he reveals to them that he must be killed and then be raised from the dead. In verse 23, Jesus says, of anyone who would come after him. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He's setting the groundwork for what it looks like to be a disciple. And right after that message, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. While Jesus is praying and the disciples are sleeping, Jesus is transfigured. His, image, his body is changed. His face and his clothes are radiant and bright. When the disciples wake up, they see Jesus there in a glorified body, talking to Moses and Elijah. How they knew it was Moses and Elijah, we're not sure. They must have had name tags. <laughs> but Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. It's to show that Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. And the climax of this scene on the mountain occurs when a thick cloud covers the mountain, and the voice of God is heard speaking about Jesus, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. So this is where we pick up in chapter 9. Right after they've been on the mountain, God Himself spoke through the cloud to say that Jesus is His Son, His Chosen One, and we should listen to Him. So we'll pick up reading in verse 37 of chapter 9. As I read, notice the failures of the disciples. I think it will be evident, but make sure to look for those. And also look for the word but, B-U-T. If you're taking notes in the bulletin, it might be helpful even to circle the times that you see that. Most of the times the word but is used, it's to contrast between the failure of the disciples and the grace of Jesus in helping them to walk in faithfulness, following him. So I'll read and you follow along starting in verse 37. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling in everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, John, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Verse 57. 
As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. <laughs> the main point, the big idea of this section of Scripture is this. The grace of Jesus guides his disciples from failure to faithfulness. The grace of Jesus guides his disciples from failure to faithfulness. The grace of Jesus guides his disciples from failure to faithfulness. We're going to take the passage in three chunks. The first one is small, the second one is large, the third one is medium-sized. <laughs> so when we get to the third point, if you feel like the second one was long, it's not as long as the second point. <laughs> All right. The first point, verses 37 to 42. A disciple's faith must be in Jesus alone. A disciple's faith must be in Jesus alone. In order to go from failure to faithfulness, a disciple must have his faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Verse 37 says that the day after this transfiguration on the mountain, they came down. And they were met again by a great crowd, which is very typical for anywhere Jesus goes. 38 says, a man came begging Jesus to look at his son. And we can see this is a very serious situation with his son. He says that, for one, he's begging Jesus to look at him. He's not just asking. This, he is very serious. He said it's his only son, which is important to him, not just because it's his son, but because this is also his legacy, his inheritance, and also his well-being. His retirement, not really retirement, but his longevity, when he gets old, he will depend on this son, on this child. There's a lot tied up in the one son. And we see in verse 39 how terrible this spirit is. It's different from others we've seen. It seizes him. He cries out. He convulses. He foams at the mouth. It shatters him, and he will hardly leave him. Almost constant. He is bothered, and not just a small bother, but he is, he, it's a strong spirit. It's not a small thing. And then verse 40, this is the important part. We see the first failure of the disciples. It says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Why did the disciples fail in this way? Why could they not cast out this demon? Jesus, we know from chapter 9 that Jesus had just given them authority over all demons and diseases. And here they cannot cast this demon out. We see the answer from Jesus in verse 41. He answered and said, look there with me in verse 41. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Faithless and twisted generation. This is maybe a reference to Deuteronomy 32, which talks about God being faithful, but those who are faithless and twisted are not among his eternal children. They're not among those who are following him and who are his people, those who are faithless and twisted. It seems that the disciples could not display the power and authority that Jesus had given them because of their faith or their lack of faith. It may have been that they thought if they said the right words that it would be enough. Or maybe they thought because they had status as apostles that made them very important and them very powerful to be able to cast out demons. But they could not. They forgot that the power and authority 
over the spiritual world comes only from Jesus and faith in him. In verse 42, when the boy comes, we see that the evil spirit makes him convulse again. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and returned him to his father. There's a restoration here where the disciples had failed. Jesus makes up for their failure. So what do we learn from their, from their failure here? What we can apply to our lives, what we can learn from this is that we must put our faith in Jesus alone. Our faith must be in Jesus. But maybe you wonder, what, what is faith? Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it goes on to say that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So faith is believing that God created the world out of nothing. Faith is confidence that God will do what he said he will do, and that he did what he said he did. It's confidence in God and his power. Faith is trusting in God as the one true and trustworthy God. Why is it important that we have faith? Ephesians 6 Paul is telling his audience to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And one part of this armor that he says to put on in 6 verse 16, he says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the shield of faith, this faith that we are called to have is so that we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. This is resisting the enemy. So just as the disciples could not cast out this demon because of their lack of faith, our lack of faith, not having faith in Jesus alone, makes us susceptible, makes us prone, makes it easy for the devil to win over us and tempt us into sin. 1 Peter 5 says to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So here's faith again related to resisting the enemy. So faith in Jesus is necessary for us to guard against our enemy, the devil. We will fail to follow Jesus rightly, if we do not have faith in him. Just like the disciples failed to counter this evil spirit because they lacked faith, we too must have faith in Jesus alone for our spiritual well-being. So how do we have more faith? You say, well, I don't know that I have a lot of faith. How do I get more? What's interesting, later in Luke chapter 17, the the disciples ask him, 17 verse 5 says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus' response to wanting more faith is saying, If you have a tiny, tiny bit of faith, then you have what you need. You have access to the power of God. It only takes a little to produce a lot when it comes to faith. So what should we do? I believe we should ask God for an increase in faith. If we recognize that we want more faith, then we should ask him to increase our faith. Well, we should follow Jesus with the faith that we have. We don't sit around and wait to follow Jesus until we have some faith that we think is enough. We follow and we obey with what we have. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking we need a really big faith to be satisfied. God says the faith of a mustard seed can move even a huge tree, move something large, can can produce a lot. So we want to make knowing and following Jesus the object, not the increase of our faith. Because any increase in faith comes from God. 
we do not make it our own. We do not will ourselves into more faith. We trust God to give us the faith that we need. But our faith must be in Him alone. Not in our own power. Not because we see some importance of ourselves and think that, oh, we can face temptation. No, the faith that we have must be in Jesus alone. Increasing our faith requires humility. We must submit to God to grow that faith in us. Which brings us to our second point for this morning. Point number two, a disciple of Jesus must be humble. A disciple of Jesus must be humble. We're going to look at verses 43 to 56. A disciple of Jesus must be humble. Verse 43 says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So after Jesus heals the boy of the evil spirit, the crowds are astonished at the majesty of God. Majesty is a word that goes along with royalty. You might say to someone, a queen or king, your majesty, or his majesty the king. So it goes along with royalty, but here in verse 44, we see that Jesus is taking the low position. He's not riding this high of people seeing him as a king. No, he takes the low position and says he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's the prince of heaven, but he's going to take the position of a common criminal. He's living out what he called his disciples to do in 9 verse 23, where he said that a disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus is denying himself here. Verse 45, we see another important but. But they did not understand this saying. There's another failure of the disciples. It follows that by saying it was concealed from them. So is it not really their fault? Is it not really a failure? Because it says it was not concealed from them. So is God blocking their understanding or something? But I believe that God is sovereign. He knew they would not understand. And what stands between them and understanding is their pride. Their pride is in the way. God knew that they would be prideful in this moment. So both of those things could be true. It was concealed from them. But it was because of their pride that it was concealed from them. We can read ahead to uh, chapter 11, verse 9, where Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. But here we see that the disciples are not asking. They're not seeking. They're not knocking. Verse 48 at the end says, They were afraid to ask him about this saying. So not only did they not understand, they feared man and did not want to ask what he meant. It was confusing to them, but they didn't want to say anything. They probably feared the other apostles. You know, one is thinking, I don't know what that means, but it looks like everybody else knows, so I'm not going to say anything. I think we do that a lot of times. I know I do. This fear of man is keeping them from actually understanding the words of Jesus. Now let's continue on in verse 46. It says that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So immediately, the disciples are arguing about who is the best among them. They want to be the right-hand man. They want to be at Jesus' side in the number two position. If Jesus is number one, they're number two. See, they're expecting that Jesus will come and overthrow the Romans and begin his earthly kingdom and reign. So they want a position in that. They're thinking this is still what's going to happen. So they want to be there at his side, and they're arguing, who should that be? Should it be Peter? Should it be John? 
Jesus understands what's going on. He knows what they're thinking. And while they're in this petty argument, Jesus says, because he knows what they're saying, he, he brings a child. And it says that he puts him by his side. So as the disciples are jockeying for Jesus' right-hand position, Jesus brings a child and puts him there instead. Think about in your company, have you ever been in a situation where the wrong person was chosen for a job? Somebody who has no experience, has no qualifications, they become the manager. They have some responsibility. And everyone's thinking, why is this guy in that position? He does not deserve that at all. He's the worst one for this position. But that kind of reaction is probably what the disciples felt with this child next to Jesus. Children were important, as we saw earlier, this father who was bringing his demon-possessed child to Jesus. But they really had no status or rights when it came to adult kind of things. So in an adult conversation, the children should have been on the outside. They wouldn't be in the prominent position next to Jesus. But Jesus is turning things upside down by bringing this child and putting him next to him. And Jesus explains to his disciples. Here we see the grace of Jesus to explain. He's saying, receive the child and you receive me. Receive me and you receive God, the Father, the one who sent Jesus. And then look in verse 48. He adds this very important phrase at the very end. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He's saying a true follower, a true disciple, is one who will take a low position. A real disciple of Jesus must be humble. We see the lesson continuing in 49 and 50. John answers this and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So John brings to the attention of Jesus, there's some other disciple, not one of the twelve apostles, who is healing people of evil spirits using Jesus' name. John didn't like this. They thought this was wrong. That's our IP. You don't have the copyright to use Jesus' name. But Jesus says, no, it's different. Again, in verse 50, we see, but, but Jesus said to him, do not stop him. This contrast is strong. They say one thing. Here's what we're doing. It's like swinging a bat or a tennis racket wrong. You just say, no, 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 no. This is how you do it. He corrects his position. Apparently, Jesus approved of this other, people, other person using his name. He must have been using it out of faith, which is somewhat ironic because we just saw how the apostles could not cast out this demon because of their lack of faith. And here, there's someone who's not one of them, one of the twelve, using Jesus' name in a faithful way. Because Jesus says, do not stop him. Again, the disciples are challenged to give up their pride and their dependence on their status as Jesus' followers. And to operate out of faith and humility of heart. We're very tempted to be prideful, especially... If we see some success in ourselves, in spiritual things, if we notice some maturity, then we think that we're doing pretty good. You know, if we get up and read the Bible and pray for a few days consecutively, it's like, yeah, I got this. This is really good. And we can be a lot like the apostles here and think that now we're doing well. And other people are not doing as well. We might want to look down on others. But the Bible says we should not think too highly of ourselves. Proverbs 3, 7, and 8 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Humility is healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the message that Jesus has here with the child and with this person who's on the outside, who's faithful. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So how do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? How can we work on being humble? 
And one way is to think of ourselves as a child. We are God's children. Think of yourself as being like that child that, God, that Jesus put next to him. You know, a child is small. A child cannot reach things on the top shelf. They don't do adult things like maybe driving a car. But a child is not usually upset or depressed that they can't do that. They have an optimism that that's going to come later. I'm going to grow, and then I'll be able to reach the top shelf or do these adult things. One day I'll be an adult, and I'll be able to do that. And that's the lesson for us. We should consider ourselves like children. We will never surpass Jesus. We'll never be bigger or stronger or more powerful than him. But as we become more and more like Jesus, we are like a child that's growing to be like him. But we should think of ourselves as like children. There's another lesson in humility in verses 51 to 56. Let's look there. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, look there in verse 54, this is the best. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he rebuked, he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So upon hearing that this, the people of this Samaritan town did not want Jesus to come there, James and John are ready for some drastic action. I think about where James and John are at at this time. They had just come down the mountain from seeing Jesus in a glorified body with Elijah and Moses. And they heard the voice of God from a cloud. That is incredible. And then before that, they've been given power and authority from Jesus to heal and to cast out demons. And they're thinking, like, Moses, he did some amazing things. Elijah, he called down fire from heaven. And they're also thinking, Samaritans, we don't like them. And they don't really like us. So when they reject us, why don't we call down fire and consume them? They would have loved to see the destruction of a Samaritan city. But we see, Luke puts it simply, Jesus turned and rebuked them. He turns his whole attention to them and rebukes them. Now remember in verse 42, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. The word here is the same as in the Greek in 42 as it is here. So James and John have taken a similar position to this evil spirit that Jesus rebuked beforehand. They're not operating under the same thinking, the same conviction that Jesus has. They don't have the same spirit operating in their minds that Jesus has. They recognize Jesus' power to do this. They know that he could do that. They're confident. But they don't have the same grace, the same compassion that Jesus has for people. Peter sums up Jesus' thinking when he wrote 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus' desire here is that even the people of that Samaritan town would not perish, but all would reach repentance. That was not the desire of James and John. What about you? Do you wish ill on people? Do you wish bad things would happen to some people? Do you hope that somebody gets what's coming to them? We must be, we must be humble to the point that we let Jesus' concerns and his priorities and his goals and his spirit rule our hearts rather than our own interests. When our pride is in control, we hope that fire would come down and burn up some of these people that we don't like. Recently, I've noticed a type of fatigue, it seems like, from some people in our city here. Because COVID has made it very difficult to travel, 
Some people have not been able to leave the city like they normally would have. Getting some breath of fresh air in their hometown and some refreshment to be able to come back. It seems like many people I've talked to gripe about things here. They blame the people or some blame the government. Personally, I like to blame the construction that's always going on for my bad attitude. But whatever the point is, the point is that uh, we have these things or these people that we feel like are making our lives miserable. If that wasn't here, if those people weren't here, we're tempted to, to wish they, they were not here or wish bad on them. We might see something bad that happens and be happy or feel some sort of satisfaction. When we blame these people, we're not responding like Jesus responds. We're not following him in the path of grace and compassion. We're being prideful. We're not being humble. A disciple of Jesus must be humble. Humbleness allows us to have the same concerns, the same goals, the same love for people that Jesus has. But how can we be humble? Remember how the disciples failed to understand Jesus' words back in verse 45. Well, we can learn from that failure by seeking to know and to understand the words of Jesus. Spending time in his word. Spending time with other believers studying his word. So that we can know the meaning of what he's saying. We know God by studying his word. For example, in 1 Timothy 2, it says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All people. God wants everyone everywhere to be saved. Everyone everywhere will not be saved. Some will reject God. But God's desire is that all people would be saved. So whoever those people are that we don't like, those people, God desires that those people would be saved. Our desire should be the same. We should be humble enough to take on God's desire for those people. We must ask God by His grace that we would be able to love and to reach out to whoever those people are instead of hating them. It's important that we do this. We want to think rightly. And when we're humble, it helps us to remember too that we might be those people to somebody else. And at one point, we were so opposed to God that we were His enemies. But even as enemies of God, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die in our place, to take the punishment for our sin. We were unlovely. We are not deserving of God's grace. And when we want destruction on someone else, we want someone else to hurt, when we blame someone else and we hate them, we are being prideful. We are not being humble. We are not being like Jesus. Now, before we move on to the last point, I want to take kind of a, a side note here. Uh, back in verses 51 to 53, uh, look there with me. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So notice we see twice that Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. He knows the reason that he's come is to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he knows that in that proclamation of the kingdom of God, he needs to die. And he's already said he's going to die. He's going to be handed over into the hands of men. So here, Jesus, there's a, there's a change in Luke's gospel of Jesus going from Galilee, where he's been most of the time, to now traveling to Jerusalem. So many chapters now will be him traveling to Jerusalem and his time in Jerusalem. So we can look forward to that. Hopefully you'd read ahead in Luke. Go ahead and read. It won't be uh, any kind of spoilers. It's actually very helpful if you would read ahead and you can see how his travels, he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. So it's important for us to know that um, as this, in the narrative, the shift from his time in Galilee to now his traveling to Jerusalem. Now let's go on to point number three. Point number three, a disciple must follow Jesus first. A disciple must follow Jesus first. 
Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds have of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this last part of chapter 9, they're, they're walking along the road now. And we see three cases of people coming to Jesus. Two say they'll follow Jesus. One of them, Jesus, calls that person to follow him. And the first one in, in verse 57 says, he'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. I'm, I'm with you. I'll follow you wherever. And Jesus, knowing his heart, responds by saying, I don't have a home. I depend on the generosity of others for where I'm going to sleep. It's possible that a rock will be my pillow and not an actual pillow. This is the kind of life that Jesus lives, and this is the kind of life that he's telling this man he would need to live to follow him. In 59, Jesus tells a man, follow me. And this would-be disciple makes an excuse, saying he needs to go and bury his father. And notice Jesus' response in verse 60. Leave the dead, let the dead, sorry, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by leave the dead to bury their own dead? Now this could mean something like let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Those who would not believe are not believers. Leave them to those things. Now culturally, at the time of, of Jesus, when a person died, my understanding is what they typically did was they would bury them in a tomb, similar to Jesus being laid in a tomb after he died. And then a year later, they would gather the bones and transfer them into a special box. And then there would be a final burial in a specific or special burial place. But there's a year gap. So this man is saying that he's wants to follow Jesus, but there's a, there needs to be a delay. He's waiting for this time when he will do the, the final burial of his father for the second and final time. Now, not doing this for his father, not burying him in this the second way, that year later, it would actually be dishonoring to his father to not do that. And re regardless, with this statement, Jesus points out that the issue is not really the burial of this guy's father. It's this man's heart. His heart is not in it. And Jesus' point also is that the good news of the kingdom of God is more important than honoring the dead. This is a strong statement from the Lord. Verse 61 is somewhat similar. Jesus says, uh, the man says, I will follow you, Lord. Let me first say farewell to those in my home. So he wants to follow, but there's a condition. He wants to go home and say goodbye to everyone there. <coughs> We know that Jesus could see the hearts of men. He can see the hearts of people, not just the outside. He knows what's going on inside. Evidently, Jesus knew that these requests were not real requests to honor parents or to complete some responsibilities. These men were stalling. They were trying to delay following Jesus. They, they wanted to say that they would follow Jesus, but they were not committed. They had not committed themselves to follow him. This second situation where Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Sorry, the third, the third one. Um, is very similar to a couple of Old Testament passages. Um, in Genesis 19, the angels of God are rescuing Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're leading them out of the city. And they tell them, go down this road. Get out of here. Do not even look back. Well, Lot's wife looks back and she immediately turns into a pillar of salt. It's similar to what it says here, like that looking, the looking back. She looked back because she, 
she still kind of wanted the cities. She, she still was not believing in the way that she was supposed to. And then the second one is 1 Kings 19. When Elijah called Elisha to take his place, Elisha was going to follow Elijah. Their names are too similar. It's hard to keep them separate. The younger was going to follow the older one. And the younger asked if he could go and say goodbye to his family. He was allowed to go say goodbye to his family. And then he came and followed Elijah. So this is different than that. Jesus is saying, no, if you put your hands in the plow and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. This seems different than even what Elisha was able to do. What's Jesus' point here? The point is that the cost of following Jesus is very high. The cost of following Jesus is very high. And a disciple of Jesus must put him first. He must be first in the heart of every disciple. Disciple must follow Jesus first. And when following Jesus, there's no guarantee of comforts in this world. Like the first man here, Jesus is talking about he has no place to lay his head. There's no guarantee of worldly comforts for a disciple. It's also urgent. He tells the second one, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There is urgency following now, proclaiming the kingdom of God now. And then there's the requirement of fully committing, a commitment. No turning back like the third, he says, one who puts his hand to the plow, one who starts the work, work and then regrets it, is not fit for the kingdom of God. So are you willing to pay the price to follow Jesus? Would you be willing to give up everything? Following Jesus is not comfortable. We are not guaranteed that following Jesus will give us everything we want in this world. We may not live in the house that we want. We may not live in the city that we want. We may not live around the people that we want. Jesus says that following him is urgent and requires commitment. Jesus could see the motivations of these three would-be followers. And he was not persuaded by their words. And just as he saw their hearts, God can see our hearts as well. He knows who's first in our life. He knows who's on the throne of our heart. And Jesus must be first. He needs to be the most important one in our life. A true disciple will have Jesus first. That means that Jesus needs to be more important than pleasing our boss at work. He needs to be more important than our career, than our house, than our stuff. And also, Jesus should be more important than our friends, more important than our spouse. Jesus should be more important than our parents and even more important than our kids. Jesus should be number one and must be number one. And maybe that seems harsh, but in reality, the best way that we honor and love and care for anyone around us, our parents, our kids, our friends, the way that we love them best is when we love Jesus most. When we put him first, that's the best thing that we could do for anyone around us. When anything or anyone is first in our life other than Jesus, then we cannot serve. We do not have faith. We are not humble. It is not good for people around us for us to have anything else but Jesus first. I love my wife best whenever I love Jesus most. If I put her first, then I love her very poorly. We've experienced this many times. Because I try to please her, I want her to be first, and then, then I start to be angry with her because she's not a very good savior, and neither am I. But when I put Jesus first, then she notices, and she tells me she feels most loved whenever I know that Jesus is first in my life. It's a constant battle to do this. But she knows that she's most loved 
whenever Jesus is first. And the same with kids. When I put Jesus first in my life, and my kids have a father who loves them well, when I put something else, even if I put them first, then I can't love them well like I can when Jesus is first in my life. It's important that he's first. How do we do this? How, how do we arrange our priorities? Well, we can look back at point number one and point number two. We strive to put our faith in Christ. We submit to him to, to be humble. And we give him priority. Because it's worth it. First Peter 5, verse 10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is an eternal glory in Christ that we can, that we can attain to, that we can have when we put him first, when we follow him faithfully. I want to close with a little bit of my own story, our own story, Jess and my story. Seven years ago, we were heading down the path of the American dream. I had a good career, we had a house, we had a couple of cars, we had kids, we had a lot of stuff. And then God clearly directed us to move to Shanghai. It seemed very clear to us, both at the same time, we understood God had been preparing us to do this. So we sold our house, we sold our cars, most of our stuff, we kept our kids. <laughs> and, we, and we moved to this place with, with those kids uh, that we had never visited we moved into an apartment that we had only seen a few pictures of it was in a place where we didn't know any of the local language we left behind aging parents, a lot of friends and uh, a lot of family and when we moved people would say, I can never do that and it's true, they could never do that. But we could never do it either. It wasn't of ourselves that we made this move, that we left behind all these things. You know, I don't like being comfortable. I miss my family and my friends. I want the comforts of my own hometown and my own home country. I want to be surrounded by people who speak my native language. And that's out of, out of selfishness, that's what I want. But the key here is that God changes our hearts. He's the one that works in us. It's by his grace that we can walk in this path of discipleship from failure into faithfulness. God is the one who transforms us. He's the one that makes us from, brings us from being faithless, prideful, idol worshipers into faithful, humble disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we are your kids. Those of us who are in Christ, we thank you for how you parent us so well as a, a loving Heavenly Father. God, teach us your ways, Lord, that we would follow you with all faithfulness and humility to your glory and to our enjoyment of your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.